This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Tuesday, February 12th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donna Edwards, former member of Congress from Maryland, regular contributor to the Washington Post, wrote of the embattled and blackened governor, Ralph Northam, and she began her piece with these words, public office is a privilege, not a right. On Vox's The Weeds podcast, we heard the same argument. It goes to this idea that being an elected official is not a right. It is a like a privilege that is bestowed on a really small number of people. Well, you'll always hear the sentiment from politicians who are looking to express humility. It is my privilege to serve. And indeed it is. And who would possibly think they have a right to office? Oh yeah, the Kennedys and the Bushes and assorted dingles. But in all seriousness, of course, no, no one has a right to a particular office. So really this could be taken as an anodyne sentiment, no way of scolding a politician. But insofar as there is any consideration of privilege and rights, there is, in fact, a right at play, a fundamental right in a democracy. It is the right of the voter to have the person who he or she elected serve in the office unless there's death or impeachment or resignation. I think asserting that it's not the office holder's right to take the perspective of the office holder is perhaps designed to conjure up resentment in all of us. Oh yeah, who is that governor who thinks they deserve to escape scrutiny? But from the perspective of the citizen, it is indeed a right not to be disenfranchised and to have your elected official who was duly elected serve in that office. Now I know, strictly speaking, we're talking about the possibility of stepping down of one's own volition. But that Washington Post poll that showed the state split exactly 47 to 47 on the question, should Ralph Northam step down? It's really complicated matters in a fascinating way. The quite salient fact that black Virginians by a margin of 58 to 37 want him to stay just leads me to say, wow, this means the forces for stay wind up being an amalgam of almost every white Republican a minority of white Democrats, and most black Democrats, which is to say most black people in the state of Virginia. Wow. Double wow. So really, all you national voices, all you national Democratic voices calling for Ralph Northam to step down, I do not question the sincerity of your belief, but who are you coming to the aid of? I've said three things, and I think they're truer than when I originally said them on the show. One, if Northam goes down, that'd be fine with me. Two, Let's take a little care before we allow the quick twitch muscles of our outrage to rule the day. And three, the objectives of Democrats in the national party, mindful of their brand as a party or as individual candidates, is different from the wishes of those very important stakeholders, the actual constituents of Ralph Northam. It's just not that easy to go transgression, reaction, ejection. Would that it were... Well, I guess we'd all be living in a twitocracy then, wouldn't we? On the show today, I spiel about where we stand on the wall versus where we stand on wall versus the stand-up stylings of Donald Trump. Did you hear what he admitted in El Paso last night? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I also live behind walls, okay? But first... Steve Schmidt, presidential advisor, walked off his own podcast on Monday. The name of the show is Words Matter. It was a favorite of mine. 
He had been hosting it alongside journalist and pundit Elise Jordan. But when Schmidt began consulting for Howard Schultz, it was a bridge too far for the producer of the show, Adam L. Levine. So the show had Schmidt sit for an interview on his own show. That is until Schmidt decided to no longer sit and he stood up and walked out. Next up, we'll have an interview with Adam L. Levine. And after that, I'll tell you of my follow-up conversation with Elise and Steve. to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on and it's not just how good it looks it's everything that can do for those who embrace the impossible the defender 110 is up for the adventure this iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design the exterior which won me over is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing the interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials the Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The Words Matter podcast has become, maybe past tense had become, one of my favorites Uh, Founded by a couple of, I guess you would say, never-Trumpers, including Elise Jordan, the journalist, and Steve Schmidt, who ran the McCain campaign. They would invite on a guest and talk about the world from, I guess you could say, the center-right perspective. It was a perspective generally different from my own, but with an adherence to fact and the belief that, in fact, words matter. I stole guests. If you heard David Priest on this podcast, it was because I heard him on that podcast, and I said, excellent conversation. I need to do that. Well, this Monday, the Words Matter podcast, at least as we know it, ceased to exist when Steve Schmidt stormed off after he was a guest on his own podcast and didn't like the questions being asked to him by the founder and CEO of Words Matter Media, Adam L. Levine. Mr. Levine served as assistant White House press secretary and director of TV news for George W. Bush, and he's worked at NBC News and ABC News and is a senior producer for uh, Chris Matthews and the McLaughlin Group. Adam Levine is here to talk about what happened then. Hello. Thanks for coming in, Adam. Great to be here. And great to know you listen. I listen. I I love the show. And I think Steve Schmidt is an extremely uh, compelling presence, a great talker. So he took a job. Is this right? I don't want to get anything wrong. He took a job with uh, the Howard Schultz campaign. So you thought you needed to talk about it. Is this right? Correct. And just a little bit of backstory on it was Steve had expressed to both my, at least and myself that he was going to be involved in an effort that was funded by Howard Schultz but would be looking at it, it as a third party, as mm-hmm. a third way. There was talk that if in November of 19 there was interest that Howard might be interested. But it was never positioned to either one of us as a presidential campaign 
and it wasn't positioned to his colleagues at NBC. And so when Howard did announce this exploratory effort on 60 Minutes, it kind of was a shock to everyone involved, including his followers and, and people who, like you, who listen to him and believe in him. Sorry, you're watching the 60 Minutes interview. Schultz doesn't not say he's running for president. Well, can I just, uh, yeah. he says, I'm seriously considering. And right. today in 2019, when a guy who has somewhere between 2.9 and $3.3 billion goes on 60 Minutes mm-hmm. and says he's seriously considering running for president of the United States, that's important. Right. And that's big. That's that's a huge announcement as it was treated right. as such. So you say to yourself, okay, one of the hosts of my show, and probably the most famous one, maybe the reason why most people listen to it, is now a presidential campaign advisor. He is now a partisan with stakes in the game, and this will at least affect how people listen to our podcast, perhaps compromise. There's something that the audience needs to be able to get their head around so that they understand what the show is going forward. And you decide, I guess there are a few choices that you have about how to do this. How do you make the choice that you would be interviewing Steve? How do you make that choice? First of all, for our listener base and the people who came to Words Matter, Howard Schultz running was sort of a seminal event to them or the the possibility of such. So this was a very – this was serious. There was – you know, I I joke that if Steve had been on the other side and had been looking at this, he would have – Describe this uh, that launch as a nationwide organ rejection. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of angst. People were saying things like, "How can he risk the chance that Donald Trump could get four more years?" With right. a theory that we'd like to say it's untested, but it has been tested several times and failed. Nicole Wallace said it best on her show: "People are scared," mm-hmm. and so we decided we had to make the decision of how we dealt with that. We had discussed with Steve that, given the response, it was probably best if we made it words matter with Elise Jordan for the time being. We discussed okay, that so that before. was the side that was the first Steve and it wasn't a permanent thing. It was a that. it was a okay, let's take a pause here. Mm-hmm. But it was decided that Steve would be stepping away from the show yes. before he sat down for that yes. interview. Do you think it was legitimate for the audience to have those concerns? Absolutely. Because you talked about the perception. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We weren't convinced. We'd seen him on Nicole. We'd seen the answers. Um and we didn't we didn't get it either. Okay. So beyond what you think, did he express reluctance to do this interview? Did he express eagerness? What was his, what did you know about what his attitude was going into the interview? He initially expressed eagerness. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got it. He got it immediately. Steve would have uh, advised any client or any candidate that he was working for to have done a similar thing if he could have that platform to do it. I think as the days wore on and the criticism and the reaction was unabated, I think that probably caused him to be a little frustrated. The criticism of Schultz and therefore the criticism of Steve. him and his involvement. And it was in both. And, yeah. and look, this, is, this was not simply a case of people going after his potential candidate. It was going after him personally. And he was as much the story in our world. So we're not going to play by far the entire interview. It was exactly a lot of the back and forth that you described and what we would expect from someone who is advising Howard Schultz. We will play the penultimate and then the ultimate question that sets Steve off. This is from the Words Matter podcast of Monday. Steve, you say he wants to have an adult conversation. Last week, he called a 70% tax on incomes over $10 million ridiculous from a United States congresswoman who happened to have been elected to something. Now, I know you're a guy of words, Steve, and ridiculous means deserving or inviting derision or mockery, absurd, uh, synonyms, comical, hilarious, 
uh, we could go on. Farcical. Is that what does he does he really mean that a tax on incomes over ten million dollars at seventy percent, which is widely popular with the American people, is ridiculous? Is that an adult conversation? Yeah, I think he thinks it's ridiculous and it's confiscatory and that it's anti-growth. That would be his point. What is will Derek Jeter or uh, another athlete not hit another home run because they're going to get taxed at 70? What's the economic behavior that he thinks it's anti-growth other than his own pocket? Adam, this is bullshit. I'm I'm not doing this. Steve, you got to answer the question. I'm not. You got it, Steve. I'm not. I'm not. Now what we heard there or what I heard there was A massive overreaction to a pointed question that was more or less fair. I don't love the Webster's Dictionary defines ridiculous as deserving of ridicule, and then you list six synonyms. But you definitely should be able to answer that question and know that question is coming. And it's not like you were browbeating him with seven versions of the question because you didn't like his answer. That was by far a legitimate question. You ask him about Derek Jeter, and he gets up and walks out. Why do you think he did it in that instance? Um, well, I know he's not a Red Sox fan. Yeah. So I know that's probably okay. not the reason. I, I, look, I don't know why he got up. I, you have to ask Steve. But I can tell you what the tension was, which was um, we were diving deeper into a policy issue than Steve had had to do for a very long time in his analyst career mm-hmm. in a way that was not necessarily um, an environment the way we'd set it up if you, you know, listen to the beginning that was just for – Idle discourse. Right, right. You weren't going to let him get away with platitudes. Correct. Right. And so we, I wanted to have the real – and I wanted to put it into a context where people understand what taxation of 70 percent on the 10 millionth and more dollar was. One of the frustrations that I'd had watching Howard Schultz uh, the first week was that he kept saying 70 percent marginal tax rates. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's technically accurate. There are 3,755 people, according to Social Security, who make over $10 million a year. That's it. Um, Again, according to their calculations. 134 of them are NBA players. Well, there you go. (laughs) And so for me, it was the – Howard had been substantively dishonest when he had stated that the Democrats or whoever at that point he was talking about had proposed taxes that were marginally 70 percent because it suggested and then immediately followed that by talking about working people. Right. It suggested to people who are in whatever income category that that was a possibility. And I wanted to clarify specifically that, yes, this was a 70 percent tax, but on a level of income that is one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. Right. So – I would say there are good answers to the question that you asked. I could give you right now some good answers. Are you saying that Steve didn't have those good answers and that maybe is one of the reasons why his tactic was to storm out? I got the sense from both watching Howard and then sitting with Steve that they had not prepared beyond that level. It was the first level. It's not, you know, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then the second level, if you ask them, they didn't really have a good answer. It showed the audience that he didn't have a response. Mm-hmm. I mean, Steve Schmidt has never been known to not answer a question that in my 15 years of friendship with him. Do you think too much is being placed on the reaction to, to Schultz? What if, let's imagine a world where there was an audience for Schultz being in the race and there were people cottoning to his message. Would Steve be punished as much in the, in the uh, minds of the listeners? 
I don't know that, but I do know there's not a place for somebody who's being paid by a political campaign to be a host of Words Matter. That's true, but... My question is, from Steve's perspective, let's say he very much believes in what Schultz is trying to do, and he's trying to help Schultz be a third-way candidate. Yeah. And he also has this show, and maybe he thinks, fine, I'll step away from the show. But this is, again, from what I'm imagining Steve's perspective to be. What I want is at least a forum to explain what Schultz is doing. Maybe we could get more people to buy in. He's been so unfairly treated. And now, here I am going on this show that at least uh, I had a lot of respect for, and they're treating me as an extension of Schultz just as unfairly as the media has been treating Schultz so far. It's just a continuation of something that's unfair, and I don't have to stand for it. And that's that's your Steve Schmidt impression. Maybe <laughs> he'd say it. He'd say it more punchy. I mean, look, there was an appetite not only for our audience, but even Elise and I. I don't have a political designation at this point in my life. I started off life working for Democrats. I worked for Republicans. I'm a registered Democrat um, because I like to vote in primaries in the state of New York where yeah, I live. Yeah. But I don't look at myself, and so. I'm open to that message, right. and I wanted to give him that. When he said, Adam, I've had enough of this, and he used your name, I said to myself, maybe there's some backstory there. Did you and Steve get along through the length of the show? Oh, absolutely. Steve Smith, I, I said it in whatever article. Steve Schmidt's one of my closest friends. I love him. He's a great guy. He's a smart guy. And the only tension, I think, is that from the time we learned on 60 Minutes to the time of that interview, and Steve is is a relentless advocate for his positions, that he hadn't convinced me. Um, I, I wasn't buying it. I just, it, didn't, it didn't ring true to me. It yeah. didn't, I probed a little. I asked if they'd ever pulled Howard Schultz's name. The answer is no. I asked if they knew if he could win the 12 electoral votes of the state of Washington. He didn't know. I, by the way, there is a better answer to that, which is, well, we'd have to win. You'd name two very purple states, and then we'd throw it to the House of Representatives. And then here's our strategy, which actually happened to be Bloomberg's strategy. And that would perhaps, in some people who had an open enough mind, say, okay, more plausible than I thought. Give me a pat. Exactly. Yeah, I don't yeah, care what those yeah. two purple states are. Or... Yeah. And then there is the potential candidate himself. Right. In the first five days, he uses un-American or un-American Four times. He uses twice in written and in the 60 Minutes interview, silent majority, which is a loaded term written by Pat Buchanan, another former McLaughlin Group guy, um, in 1968 for Richard Nixon. He uses both sides, something Donald Trump had said. Call a woman of color, United States senator, un-American or say that's not American, uh, Kamala Harris, Congresswoman um, Cortez, after uh, Steve properly denounced birtherism and all the connotations, that alone is disqualifying. Forget if he could even stand a chance against Trump or who he takes votes from. If we care about words matter, and Steve Schmidt absolutely does or did, how can you let your candidate or your potential candidate or your name be associated with somebody who calls somebody un-American in that context? I think that's, I personally, when I take off my trying to look down the center of the field, that's outrageous. In the couple of weeks that uh, Steve's been working for the Schultz quasi-campaign, do you think he's been paid more than in his long association with Words Matter Media? Probably. Do you think that might have factored into his decision? Um, I try not to go to motivations like that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I couldn't have matched that, what Mr. Schultz was paying him. Do you think if this was a show that was more based on an established, entrenched ideology, it would have been easier to weather this situation? 
Um, I guess so. I mean, I it, it depends on what the situation was. Where you know, if Steve had if we were the center right and he'd gone to work. For well, Senator I'm thinking Warren. of I'm thinking of like a Pod Save America host leaves the show because he signed on to the Klobuchar campaign or something. That's it. Seems like they would just go on without and that's probably skipping a beat. And that's probably right. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably right. And I don't think that any listener to Pod Save America would not understand why any host of Pod Save America would go work for Senator Klobuchar. Yeah. It's more in keeping with the ideology. I suppose if a Pod Save America host wanted to work with Howard Schultz, they'd have the same. They would have so some So a lot questions. of it comes, ah, this is interesting, because I think maybe Steve thought of what he was doing as a centrist enterprise or an independent enterprise, and he thinks of Schultz essentially as that, and therefore, you know, what's the big disconnect? Maybe he understands, fine, as I'm running a campaign, I can't be hosting the show, but it's pretty much in keeping with the ethos of the ideals behind it, but you don't agree. No, what would I what I agree with is if Steve had set out to do what he had told us he had, was going to do, which was explore that third way, not only would that not have been antithetical, as I've said, to the mission, it would have been right on line with the mission. It's just – and I don't even have a problem getting paid uh, for him to do that yeah. because we all have to get paid yeah. in the things that we do. Yeah. The, and beyond that, his paid gigs are what gives him the position to be Steve Schmidt today. Exactly. Yeah, and like so paid by politicians. Right. And so for, disqualifier. Yeah. Right. So for me – and at least, and for us at Words Matter, it was really an issue of, wait a second, this is, and NBC, this is a candidacy. And there was a desire by some people to, at least initially, sort of just forget about it, put it behind us and go on. But and you were I, always wanted to put it out I there. never wavered. And I remember, then when he heard the full thing, when he heard what we had put together, which was, and again, you do this, it's, there's sometimes a difference and it's not editing. It's just when you hear it with the music and you, when you hear it with the intro and it sounds different than you experienced it, you felt Mm -hmm. it in the studio. And so I wanted to do that. And once I did that and listened to it, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that we had to do it. Um, We went about the, we have a process of releasing because we have sometimes newsworthy guests. What I will do is do a draft sort of post where I can send that to a journalist and say, hey, are you interested in writing about this before this goes out? Um, I send it to journalists throughout the weekend to see if they're interested because, as you know, if you get pickup from that, yeah. they want it on an exclusive basis. Nobody's going to write about it once it drops. But if they can write about it before it does, that's interesting. Except with this one. Except with this one. <laughs> Adam L. Levine, he's untattooed, uh, at least from what I can see. So he's not that guy. Wouldn't that be <laughs> funny if you're listening to this whole interview? You're like, wow, the guy from Maroon 5 is sure different than I thought. Adam L. Levine is founder and CEO of Words Matter Media, executive producer of the ongoing Words Matter podcast. Thanks so much for coming in. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay, an addendum to all that. I reached out to Steve Schmidt and Elise Jordan. Here's what they said. What happened on Words Matter to quote Schmidt was more a business dispute than anything else. This is again quoting Schmidt. People didn't hear an evasion. They heard a business dispute break out under the guise of an interview. Schmidt also told me that he was surprised to hear that Words Matter Media was Adam Levine's. And based on my conversation with Schmidt and Jordan, I will say that they dispute the title I read for Levine, which I just took from the website, founder and CEO of Words Matter Media and executive producer of the Words Matter podcast. One last thing, that part where I asked Levine if there was any animosity between he and Schmidt, and he said, no, Steve's one of my closest friends. I'm not sure the feeling is mutual.
that's me talking, just the impression I got from Schmidt and Jordan, who say that they will be coming on the gist soon to talk about this, but really all manner of politics. And it is my intention. We will bring you that interview as soon as we can. And now the spiel. Today in Washington, Senator John Thune, Republican SD, talked about the deal that the Republicans signed with the Democrats to fund the government. The Republicans apparently got some funding for a barrier, but not enough to afford the definite article. I don't mean the real thing. I mean the word the. He doesn't say the. I think that if you look at the overall contours of this deal, the president gets to build wall. Three times as much wall as would have been allowed for under a continuing resolution. They not just build wall, they also build fence thing. And there is going to be physical barrier that's constructed with this. The president, upon learning of this deal, had this to say. I don't think you're going to see a shutdown. I wouldn't want to go to it now. If you did have it, it's the Democrats' fault. Which is curious because the Republicans and the Democrats have a deal. The only holdup will be if he doesn't sign the deal they have. It's almost as if someone said, whatever you do, Mr. President, don't make the mistake you made with Schumer. Do not take credit for this shutdown. But of course, you can imagine the president saying, look, that's great advice. But what if it's just not true? What if it is my fault? What do I do then? At which point, Mick Mulvaney or whoever knows he's dealing with cyborg fake clone Donald Trump and maybe he'll Submit to him a paradox which does not compute, causing his head to melt into his torso. It's funny to think of the president saying things like that. In fact, these days I've been finding ways to find the president funny, as in laughable, risible, ridiculous. Perhaps if the president is defeated in 2020 or if he leaves in disgrace, perhaps one day we will all look back on this era as farcical. I hope so. It seems like a luxury we can't afford these days, but the evidence is so clear. It's like Mike Birbiglia told me, Trump's a middle act in a stand-up show. Did you hear his hilarious riff on partial birth abortion? I mean, who are the ad wizards that came up with this one? Oh, you don't think that's where he took his set? Oh, he did. Democrats are also pushing extreme late-term abortion. (laughs) Allowing children to be ripped from their mother's womb right up until the moment of birth. What's that all about? What's that all about? And then he told us his version of what it was all about, which turned out to be a bit of an abortion of facts. But the governor stated that he would even allow a newborn baby to come out into the world and wrap the baby and make the baby comfortable and then talk to the mother and talk to the father and then execute the baby. Execute the baby. No, no, you don't need me to tell you this, but that bill in Virginia does nothing like the president says it does. And you also don't need me to tell you that when he called out Hawaiian Senator Maisie Hirono, he totally got her position wrong. This crazy senator from Hawaii... They said, do you like it? Yes, I like it very much. Oh, really? How are we getting to Hawaii on a train? She didn't think about that one, but she's thinking about it. She'll figure it out. I mean, this speech just, it was sad and weird and full of lies and hilarious. And he just hates Barack Obama so much. He did this freeform reverie about buying a dog. 
And he was a little unsettled. He was on the fence. And then a member of the crowd chimes in about his predecessor. So I'll play you that. As set up, he starts talking about how good German shepherds are at drug detection at the border. And this leads to wistful dog talk. You do love your dogs, don't you? I wouldn't mind having one, honestly, but I don't have any time. I don't have time. How would I look walking a dog on the White House lawn? Would that be... Right? Sort of not for... I don't know. It doesn't... I don't feel good. Feels a little phony. Phony to me. A lot of people say, oh, you should get a dog. Why? It's good politically. I said, look, that's not the relationship I have with my people. We want to have... Yeah. Obama had a dog, you're right. And it ends with, Obama had a dog. That settles it. But you know who else had a dog? Every president before him for 130 years. Obama had a dog. Bush had a dog. Clinton had a dog. Bush had a dog. Reagan had a dog. Do I have to list them all? Checkers, Nixon, all the dogs. But Trump doesn't understand how dogs work. Eric Erickson, David Gregory, they were fired like dogs. He also doesn't understand how history works. But he does understand stand-up. Because you got these printed words on a screen and he knows that he could riff off of them to what's called improv off the written material. Hours before, now this is a little bit of a cheat on my part, hours before the big speech in El Paso, I watched him do a practice set, if you will, with a bunch of law enforcement officials in really big hats. So he pulls out of his pocket some statistics from Office of Homeland Security. Convicted felons, people of tremendous, like, Big problems. I just got this from Homeland Security. And you look at this, thousands of people. Uh, Dangerous drugs, 76,000 people. He's worried that you might not understand the severity or the nature of some of these crimes. Uh, Kidnapping. These are people that kidnap people. No, they're people who kidnap people. And as we know, people who kidnap people are the happiest people. Anyway. I think he just brings the concept alive, doesn't he? He makes it hit home. But then we come to murder. Now, we all understand what murder is on an intellectual level. But to really feel it, you know, I remember that scene in Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood movie, where Clint says, um, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. And that stuck with me. So let's see how Trump takes this notion and brings it alive. Homicide, that means murder. Murderers, 2028. Okay, so that was before the speech. That was a tryout in the club. Let's see how it changed and matured by the time he played the big room in El Paso. 30,000 sex crimes, 25,000 burglaries, 12,000 vehicle thefts, 11,000 robberies, 4,000 kidnappings, and 4,000 murders. Murders, murders, killings, murders. Murders, murders, killing, murders. If only POTUS couldn't hurt us. Is it a farce? Is it a tragedy? Is it a horror show? A little bit. I think it's like Sean or Don of the Dead. Lots of talk about death and carnage and caravans, but ultimately good for a laugh. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They're great producers, but they're a little lactose intolerant. So I told them... You're not allowed to own cows anymore. You know, there are a lot of problems. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts, where she has met only success. She's 
batting a thousand or put another way. One and one. I'm one for one. Think of it. We're, we had one election. We won. Now we're going to be two for all and everything's going to be perfect. The gist. How'd you like? How'd you like my speech? You know, during the spiel. Some people said it was a great speech. Some people said really a great speech. Some people are right. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening.